Hey everybody, so sorry. Had some internet connection problems. How is everybody? Happy Sunday. You have a little bit of drink here. Sunday reading day. More about Lizzie Borden. Been a busy weekend. Excuse me a second. I know AC is nice and cool today. Hope everybody's had a great weekend. Hope you're having a great meal, whatever that is right now. And for those of you on the East Coast, you're probably getting ready to put your slippers on and head to bed. So maybe I can lull you to sleep with a book. Let's go ahead and give everybody about five minutes to get settled, grab their snacks, whatever. Because we're going to do some reading here. Last time we saw Lizzie Bor last time we saw Lizzie, um, last time, okay, last time we saw Lizzie, she was getting, they, they were getting suspicious. The warrants were going to be going out, so we're almost at the point where we're going to get to see, you know, when they arrested her and stuff, because she's under, under major suspicion for what she's done. And the problem is, she's getting really aggressive with her family, because she knows she's under major suspicion. And you know what, I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Charlotte. <laughs> I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. And I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. Uh, we have 45 people up and down the state, which means if you have a ghostly need or you think you might have a ghostly need, we can get to you. And if we're not that close to you, we can still get to you even for three counties away because we have, we have people in almost every county in the state. We also have a, we also have branches of California Haunts. In, well, not California Haunts, but Nevada Haunts. You know, in Nevada... Oregon, Washington, and Hawaii. So it's Hawaii, Hawaii haunts, California haunts, Nevada haunts, Oregon haunts, blah, 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 blah. It's like that. But if you want to find us, you can find us at CaliforniaHaunts.org or the radio show at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Too many radio, too many California haunts. Or check it out. Check us out on Facebook. Right? California haunts. There's two Facebook pages. There's also my personal page, which is public. And California Haunts Ghostly Events. You can find us there. Shoot me an email. Anyhow, if you're watching, that reminds me, if you're watching from Facebook or you're watching from YouTube, please, okay, if you're not watching from Facebook, please hit the follow button and follow us. You know, we're here six days a week. Sunday through Friday. That's six days, yeah. Six days a week. And we have a different, we have a different topic every night. It may be paranormal. It may not be paranormal. Because I like to change, you know, I like to change it up a little bit. But uh, if you go over, if you, if you check out our YouTube site, you'll see that we have more than 270 videos over there of different topics. Okay, I think there's something for everybody over there. You know, we just don't look at ghosts and stuff. We're looking at UFOs. We're looking at conspiracies. We're looking at all that stuff. So it's it's a pretty eclectic set of stuff. And not only that, like I said. I'm a journalist. I like to do different topics. So we've also covered spousal abuse. We've covered happy stories. We've covered you know, a little bit of everything. So I think there's something over there for everybody. Anyway, I spent the weekend cleaning my house and working on my backyard. I have a really cool backyard every year. And uh, finally got finally to the point where it'll be done within a day or so. So I'm real proud of that. Very magical when I get done. And then uh, did some shot, did, you know, went to Walmart today, which is always an adventure. Get some supplies, much needed supplies. And of course, worked on radio stuff last night into the early morning hours. Got all the guests confirmed for this week, which we got really some really cool people coming on. And uh, 
yeah, and I'll be doing the same thing tonight. I'll be looking for guests for the rest of the month. Okay. Last day of July. Last day of July. I want to thank everybody from the podcast who downloaded let me get this one. Who downloaded the uh podcast because you brought our numbers up really, really well this month. So I want to thank everybody who did that. Again, I want to thank everybody that's donated, our fans in France, our fans over in the Mideast. I want to thank all everyone, everyone. I know who you are, and I'm thankful, ever thankful. But tonight is Sunday night, and what we do Sunday night, for those that haven't been here, is I read from a book, a paranormal-themed-related uh, book, every Sunday evening. Excuse me, it's hot. Every, it's hot in here, under these lights. Every Sunday evening, I, I read from a paranormal-themed book. You know, we've read from The Ghost of Flight 401. We, we started with Mrs. Miracle, because that was Christmas. But The Ghost of Flight 401, we've read about uh, Haunted Germany, you know? And now we're reading about Lizzie Borden. Everybody knows about Lizzie. Was it gave her mother 40 wax when she saw what she had done, right? She gave her father 41. Is that how it goes? That limerick. My dad used to sing the limerick all the time. But, yeah. So this is what I'm here for. So this so you can end your Sunday night on a nice, relaxing note. Grab your coffee, popcorn, whatever, whatever it is you have. And you can sit down and just... Turn the lights down low and, and hear me read, read, read from Lizzie Borden by Rebecca F. Pittman. Does that sound like a plan? Sounds like a plan for me, too. I actually like this book. It's, it's pretty cool. You know, she takes you into Lizzie's thoughts, which is kind of cool. So you're in into the mind of a, of a murderer, murderess, which keeps it kind of cool, right? Right? Okay, one more minute and we will get the show on the road here. But uh, again, if you're watching from Facebook, you know, and you like what you hear tonight, you know, there's somebody else in the house. Maybe you want to call them over and share, share and share with share with them. Okay, the more people you share with, the more people get to hear the show, which is fun, right? And the more people who you share with, who might like the show, might like, you know, not only like us but might follow, start following us or subscribe on YouTube. If you're watching from YouTube tonight, there's a ghost down in the bottom right hand corner. It's got a magnifying, he has a magnifying glass on and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. That's our mascot. So if you like what you hear, hit that subscribe button. Because that's what we're looking for. If you like the show itself, hit that like button. We need lots of likes. Likes, 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 likes. And again, you know, be sure to follow us if you're listening on Facebook and Twitch. Okay, let me get the book here. Let me go grab this puppy. Ah. <sighs> More wires, I tell you. I have an old tablet. Not really old. Well, probably about six years old. It's antiquated by, you know, six years old. When you think about tech stuff, you know. Looking for a new tablet, but not yet. It still does the job, except I can't I can't download the latest software on it anymore, you know. It's an Android, so I can't download the, native, the latest stuff on it because it's so old. Anyway, welcome, and uh, for those that haven't been here before for this, uh, this is our Sunday evening read, so you can get ready for your get ready for your work week, end your weekend on a relaxing note, even if it is a story of a murder. <laughs> no, I don't 
going at the home screen. Go that way. Go that way. Go that way. Where are you? There you are. Give it a minute. It's old like me. Anyway, it's great to be here tonight. I'm real excited about being here. And I got this thing turning on me. Hang on. Oh, we have this pretty well. Oh, there we go. Okay. Well, that wasn't very good. There it goes. Okay. Oh. Non-cooperative mics. That's what we like in this world. No, we don't. Okay, so we're going to read. And uh, I think I don't even know what chapter we're in. However, we're going to start with Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony. All right, let me grab a quick sip of water here, and away we go. Again, Lizzie Borden is not is not arrested yet. They kind of suspect her. You know, the uh, suspector. They kind of suspect her of, of, of doing the deed, but she has not officially been arrested yet. But I think I think it's close. It could could be tonight. It could be tonight. That, to get her. Lizzie Borden's tip. Lizzie Borden. <laughs> Lizzie Borden. Let me see if I get this right. It is. I had to move everything this weekend because I was cleaning in here. Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony. Marshall Hilliard and Officer Doherty arrived at the Borden home at 140 with a subpoena for Lizzie Borden. In an effort to keep the two from comparing testimonies and have Bridget nearby if they needed to recall her to the stand that day, Bridget was being held in the matron's rooms at the police department. At the Marshall. As the marshal's buggy pulled up before number 92, the ambiguous crowds pushed forward. Something was finally happening. They had seen Bridget led away. Now they were here to arrest Miss Lizzie. The men were let into the house. Moments passed as the breathless crowd waited, as a breathless crowd waiting in anticipation. When the front door opened and they caught a glimpse of skirt, the excitement reached a climax. If it had been a generation of cell phones, the cameras would have been flashing. Instead of Lizzie Borden, the throng of onlookers saw Mary Ellen Brigham, Lizzie's friend from childhood, exit the house and make a mad dash across the street to Dr. Bowens. Did Lizzie faint? The crowd murmured excitedly. Maybe she killed herself before they could arrest her. Once again, the morbid gawkers were kept in suspense as Mrs. Brigham returned to the Bordens without the doctor, shutting the door behind herself. Agonizing minutes passed. Finally, the door opened, and Marshal Hilliard and Officer Doherty escorted Lizzie from the house. Mrs. Brigham was close behind as they climbed into the waiting carriage. The Fall River Herald was quick to jump on this historic event. They reported in the past few days Lizzie had terribly aged. The full round cheeks that friends of her former days remember have entirely disappeared, although the bright eyes and haughty expression are still retained. There was not a falter in the step as she came down the stairs. Lizzie was attired in black, a departure from her preferred blue color, as she gave a meager nod to the, to the morning requirements of the day. There was no veil, no crepe, and no tears. By the time the marshal's carriage entered Court Square, the crowds were waiting for them. It was tough going down the narrow alley leading to the police station's back entrance. As Lizzie finally stepped down from the buggy, reporters noted her pale complexion and that she was nib nibbling her bottom lip, a trait she inherited from her father, and seen often throughout the upcoming ordeal. Lizzie's heart was pounding as she climbed the stairs of the second floor and walked past the policeman standing guard outside the second district courtroom. The sedative Mrs. Brigham had just mixed for her after returning from Dr. Bowen's 
was just now sending a chill feeling through her veins. Her head felt fuzzy, and things around her seemed to be part of a bad dream. Judge Blaisdell was seated next to his bench next to the witness chair. I'm sorry, was seated at his bench next to the witness chair. Across from this were two tables, one for the defense lawyers and one for the prosecutors. Only the prosecuting team was present. Attorney Knowlton turned to watch Lizzie Borden as she was asked to take the stand. In his gut, he knew this would be an uphill climb. Attorney Andrew Jennings, Lizzie's representative, had battled in vain to be allowed to be present during her inquest testimony. He knew full well this was not just an informal examination, as the marshal and DA had tried to frame the meeting. His grounds for representing her that afternoon, he said, was that his client had been accused of murder by the mayor himself. It would not be the first time the mayor's ill-timed answer to Lily, to Lizzie question, is someone here suspected, would come back to bite him. At a formal inquest, Lizzie should have been told her rights and warned about her answers, as they might be used against her. She was not. Later, Judge Blaisdell said he assumed Mr. Jennings had gone over Lizzie's rights with her. No oath was given, possibly an attempt to downplay how important the proceedings were. The other men in the courtroom that day could have aptly been called conspirators in creating the noose they hoped to see around her neck. Marshal Hilliard, Detective Seaver, Dr. Dolan, and several of the officers first on the scene were still in attendance. It was said some of the officers came and went during the proceedings. Well, it is assumed the prosecuting attorney would be happy to have his lead suspect in his crosshairs. Mr. Knowlton was not feeling the thrill of the hunt. He was, an he was in an impossible position. This was not only a female accused of, mur of a murder so heinous that most men would flinch, but she was a well-respected member of the community, a Sunday school teacher, and a dedicated volunteer to many causes. Above all, she was a Borden, a name that meant something in her, <clears throat> a name that meant something in the town. The Bordens, along with, with the Durfies, the Braytons, and others, had built Fall River. Their money talked, and their power could bury you. Not only that, Jose and Knowlton knew they had no evidence to put before a jury. Everyone who saw Lizzie only moments after discovering her father's body stated there was not one drop of blood on her. Attorney General Pillsbury had dumped the case in his lap, and he would have gladly unloaded it. Hang on one second. Okay. All right. Here's a thing telling me where I can read the inquest testimony. So we're going to skip around on that one. Okay. Day one of the inquest ends. At the close of the day on Tuesday, August 9th, District Attorney Knowlton posted the bulletin outside the police station that two witnesses had been examined and the inquest will continue the next morning at 10. The sentence, nothing to publish, was added. The scant, scant information did nothing to mollify the frustrated public. Letters to the police and to reporters mirrored Fall River's attitude that the police had done a shoddy job from the beginning. Marshal Hilliard could feel the hot breath of discontent and anger upon his neck as he struggled to find more evidence. Police were dispatched to Somerset, Massachusetts at 2.30 that Tuesday afternoon to follow up on a lead about a farmhand at the Brayton Farm bearing a bloody hatchet. When the police arrived, they found the man had been killing chickens with a hatchet 
and it had never been buried. This did not keep reporters from scouring the nearby Swansea farms owned by the late Andrew Borden. As they searched for clues and weapons, nothing came to light. Professor, uh, Professor Wood of Cambridge arrived the day before in case he was needed at the inquest. He had been sent the stomachs and milk recovered on the day of the murders. He was closeted with Dr. Dolan for a while on Tuesday. The bits of clothing and other souvenirs taken from the pile buried behind the Borden barn were turned over to him for further examination. He dodged reporters' questions as to whether he had examined any axes while he was there that day. He retorted, I do not expect to. I could not very well bring down my laboratory. Attorney General Pillsbury, who came to town at 2.30 that afternoon, at the request of Attorney Knowlton, was said to be there to advise the DA as to certain aspects of the case. This caused many to think the prosecution's case was weak, and there was not enough evidence proceed to proceed with an arrest. The fact that the warrants were made out and traveling around in Marshall Hilliard's coat pocket was not known, not even to Mr. Jennings. Mr. Knowlton and the Attorney General met at the Mellon House during a brief recess. At 3.40, the inquest was resumed and Mr. Pillsbury left the building where he was met by reporters. He told the eager journalists that the case was not so mysterious as had been reported, and bantered with them concerning the clues. The reporters bantered back that the murder was mysterious enough to baffle the police, and that five days had elapsed and there was no arrest. Someone took the pains to further inform the Attorney General that the evidence was purely circumstantial. You newspaper men know or ought to know, said Pillsbury that you may not be in a position to pronounce on the case. There may be some things which you have not heard of and of which may have an important bearing. The reply was to the effect that the head men working on the case had conceded at noon that day that they had no other evidence and that they ought to be pretty good authority. Parentheses, police officers do not always tell what they know, was the parting shot of the Attorney General as he withdrew. Edwin Porter with the Fall River Globe wrote the following. At five o'clock, Bridget Sullivan left the police station in company with Officer Doherty and passed the court square, passed down the court square. She was dressed in a green gown with hat to match and appeared to be nervous and excited. Nobody knew her, however, and she attracted no attention. She went into the Borden house for a bundle and, still accompanied by Officer Doherty, walked to 95 Division Street where her cousin Patrick Harrington lives and where she passed the night. She was allowed to go on her own recognizance and seemed to be much relieved to get away from the Borden house. The government impressed her with the necessity of saying nothing about the proceedings at the inquest, and she was warned not to talk with anyone regarding her testimony. At six o'clock, Miss Lizzie Borden, accompanied by her friend, Mrs. George Brigham and Marshall Hilliard, entered a carriage and drove to Miss Borden's home. The excitement was over for the day, but the district attorney's bulletin made it plain to it made it plain the authorities would make no further move that night. About 7 o'clock that evening, all the prominent officials in the case disappeared to get a little rest. District Attorney Knowlton went to the Mellon House, and Mr. Seaver went down to dine with Marshall Hilliard at his home on Durfee Street. The restless crowds went home to read the reports in the papers. By midnight, the city was quiet. Parentheses. The fact that Bridget was allowed to go to her cousin's house and to come and go as she pleased was a huge sign that the prosecution found her credible and trustworthy. Lizzie and John Morris, however, were still within the walls of the Borden house with armed policemen rimming the perimeter. Another aside is that Bridget was wearing a green gown, 
It was stated by police the servant only had about three dresses when they searched her room. If she was in the habit of wearing the green dress when she was outside of work, could the green dye from the dress be, cut, be the cause of her frequent headaches? The dye was made from arsenic and known to be harmful, if not deadly during that era. In the parentheses. The inquest, day two, Wednesday, August 10th, 1892. The New York Times. Fall River, Massachusetts, August 10th, 1892. The inquest was continued at 10 o'clock today. The witnesses examined were Lizzie Borden, John V. Morse, Emma L. Borden, Dr. S. W. Bowen, Adelaide B. Churchill, and Hiram Harrington. Adjourned until 10 a.m. Thursday, nothing developed for publication. This was all that was given out after examinations lasting more than four and a half hours. The principal witness was Lizzie Borden. The change in Miss Borden's appearance after her examination was a cheap topic was a chief topic of conversation in the police station tonight. Whatever the police may think of the strength of their clues, it is certain that the opinions of Miss Borden's many friends are entirely in favor of her innocence. This feeling is gaining more, more, more adherence every hour. Dr. Bowen told a straightforward story covering the time since he was called to the Borden house a few days before the murder. He incidentally gave some evidence which startled authorities. The nature of this will not be given for publication, but it was learned that tomorrow an examination of the dead bodies will be made at Oak Grove Cemetery. John Vindicum, Morris's testimony that day was, to say the least, uncomfortable and, con and confrontational. He answered Attorney Knowlton's questions without wavering and made a credible witness, albeit losing his temper when he felt the trap closing in. Nothing differed from what he had stated all along as to his alibi that day. I was at Daniel Emery's at number 4, Waybossett Street, from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. The main portion of his testimony, that carried no credibility, was his stating he didn't notice any crowds around the house when he arrived shortly before noon. John is articulate and appears straightforward. He is not above lying, especially since a Bible was not proffered for it else to be administered. He avoids embellishes, and even produces a convenient letter from Andrew to back up his statements. Emma Borden's testimony elicited much sympathy from the courtroom of men. She looked pale and aged. One newspaper unkindly compared she and Lizzie in appearance. Lizzie looks a good ten years younger than her age, while her sister Emma looks a full ten years older than her own. Emma's heavy black dress hung on her, threatening to swallow her slender form. She gripped her closed fan and waited for Mr. Knowlton's inquiries. An inadvertent picture of her sister Lizzie was painted in the minds of the listeners that morning. Without saying it, Emma's remarks showed a younger sister who was lazy, indulged, temperamental, and spoiled. Whenever housework was discussed, Emma tried to dis disguise that she did it all, when the tasks were supposedly shared by the sisters. She admitted Lizzie spent money freely. My sister used to order a great many things from John M. Dean's. Parentheses. Dean's store was in the Borden block of Fall River and was considered the best appointed general merchandise store in New England. In parentheses. Emma admitted she was on less cordial terms with Abby than Lizzie. Emma called Mrs. Borden Abby, while Lizzie addressed her as Mrs. Borden. And less frequently as Abby. Attorney General no Attorney Knowlton got her to admit it was the transfer of the 4th Street house five years earlier into Abby's name that began the major fissure in the household. At that time, Lizzie stopped calling Abby mother. Emma also let it slip what the nature of Lizzie's and Uncle John Morse's relationship was really like. She said, he is a very dear uncle of ours. Well, of mine. 
Attorney Knowlton asked Emma if there was any conversation between herself and Bridget upon her arrival from Fairhaven the afternoon of the murders. I asked her two questions, Emma said. Would she stay with us? And I asked her if she saw any boy come with a note. The last question is incredibly telling. Lizzie has told her sister a boy came with a note from a sick friend for Abby. Why is Emma doubting her and asking Bridget for details? Did Bridget wonder about Emma's question as well? Attorney Knowlton then asked the question everyone is waiting for. Knowlton, did you see your sister then when you came home? Emma, yes, sir. What did she say about it? Emma, I don't know. There was so much going on. Knowlton, I don't think I will trouble you with that question anyhow. After only a handful of other questions, Mr. Knowlton pauses and looks across at the grieving lady before him. For all that has been said about the attorney in the papers, you cannot say Jose and Knowlton did not have a conscience and a kind heart. Knowlton, I understand you're not feeling well. Emma, no, sir, not very well. Knowlton, so I have omitted a great many questions I should have asked you on that account. With that, Emma Borden was excused. Cutting away pieces of the house. During a court recess on Wednesday, August 10th, Maurice Daly, a carpenter, was sent to the Borden house about one o'clock to remove samples of evidence from the interior. Marshal Hillier, Detective Seaver, and Officer Harrington pointed out what was needed. Harrington stated, Mr. Daly cut away a marble slat from the west end of the dressing case, a piece of molding that capped the mop board, and a piece of plaster to which was adhered the wallpaper. Each of these articles had spots of blood on them. Parentheses from the guest room. Mrs. Charles Holmes was there, overseeing things, while John, Emma, and Lizzie were at the courthouse. She may have been mortified to see the men cutting away pieces of the house. She asked them if they wanted the bedspread and pillow shams. The marshal replied, if you please. Harrington stated, the articles were taken from the northwest room of the second floor where Miss, Mrs. Borden was found. A piece of wood was taken from the west casing of the door, which leads from the dining room to the sitting room where Mr. Borden was murdered. The piece of wood had a splatter of blood on it. They also took away a pair of ladies' low-tie shoes and one pair of black stockings, which Lizzie wore on the day of the murders. Lizzie handed them to the marshal upon being escorted home at the end of the inquest that day. When asked upon the stand if the stockings she wore that the day of the murders had been washed, Lizzie had answered, I don't know. Officer Harrington said, The men continued out to the barn where they took one willow basket containing two pieces of round lead pipe and a number of pieces of scrap sheet lead, and one wooden box in which were pieces of round sheet lead. The basket and contents were found upstairs, and the box and its holdings downstairs. Everything was brought to the station house and locked in the, in the storeroom by Marshal Hilliard. Officer Harrington then summoned Mrs. Churchill, Hiram, C. Harrington, and Alan Egan to appear in court at 4 p.m. Dr. Handy's discontent. Give me one second here. Okay. As the inquest wrapped up for the day, Officers Harrington and Doherty were on the hunt for Dr. Handy. The police were still very much interested in the doctor's description of seeing a strange, exceedingly pale man hanging out across from the Borden house the morning of the murders. According to Officer Philip Harrington's report, Dr. Handy was finally located. I went in search of Dr. Handy, found him at Charles J. Holmes's, asked, asked him would he accompany an officer to Boston to see a party whom the Boston police located, and who they thought resembled the person whom he saw. He said, well, I suppose I must go. I said, no, there's nothing compulsory about the request. 
He did not seem to like the idea of going and said, It is a very warm night, and I have quite a number of cases on hand from which I expect births. But then, laughing, I suppose they are as apt to come during the day as well as at night. Wait a minute, I'll see. He, Dr. Handy, then went to another part of the house and talked with the Holmes family for a few minutes. He then returned to the parlor and said, Well, I'll go. Who is going with me? Is it you? I told him I could not say. Will the officer call my house? Will he come in a carriage, or will we go to the depot in the horse car? I said I did not know, but whichever way the officer would, would be there in time. After arriving in Boston, we, parentheses, Doherty and Harrington, called the station four and learned something of, and, and learned something of, and the residence of, the man we saw. We then went to police headquarters in Fall River, and after transacting my business there, we retired. Officer Harrington's report on Dr. Handy continues the following morning of Thursday, August 11th, 1892. This was the final day of the inquest, and the tension was mounting to find any and all evidence concerning the case. Officer Phil Harrington, in the morning, in the morning Thursday, we, along with Dr. Handy, went again to Station 4, from whence a local officer accompanied us to number 19 Oxford Street, the home of Henrik Wood, the man wanted. Mr. Wood was not at home. He had gone to Lexington in the morning to see a friend who was building a house near a lot owned by him. From the lady who came to the door, we got a description of Mr. Wood. She also showed us a photograph of him. She handed it to me, and I immediately turned it over to the doctor, who, before he had it rightly in his hand, pronounced him not the person. There were three persons on the card, two men and a child. The child was in Mr. Wood's arms. Owing to the position in which he sat, his face was very much shaded, which made it difficult for observation. This, together with the fact that Dr. Handy so readily pronounced him not the man, is, to my mind, very significant. His so social relations with Mrs. with Miss Lily were very close, are very close. She was to spend her vacation at Dr. Handy's cottage at Marion with his daughter. He left Boston for home at 8.30 a.m. Hiram Harrington was next called to the stand on that Wednesday afternoon. His story varied little from what was reported early in, early in the book concerning Lizzie's temperament and the family relations within the Borden walls. Although he softened, his words, he softened his words slightly for the inquest, it was clear he was not a fan of Lizzie's. Since he was not involved the day of the murders, he had nothing to offer in way of evidence other than to slaughter Lizzie's image. Attorney Knowlton did not spend much time with him. Alan Egan, who was summoned, does not appear in the inquest testimony documents. It is probable the name Alan is a misprint. Alan Egan was summoned, and she spent a scant three questions on the stand. Her testimony was that she was coming down 2nd Street on the morning of the murders and became ill. She had been experimenting with some pills to rectify an illness. Hang on a second. Okay, sorry, it moved. She had been experimenting with some pills to rectify an illness she had, and about the time she reached the Kelly property, the medicine rebelled. She dashed into the Kelly's bushes and vomited. Her appearance in court was an answer to Hiram Lubinsky's claim that he saw a woman coming from the barn area of the Borden's yard at 10.30 in the morning of the murders. It was quickly ascertained Mrs. Egan was in the Kelly yard, not the Borden's, and was not the woman the ice cream peddler saw. Her testimony did not warrant making it into the court documents that day. At the end of the day, once again, the crowd went away grumbling that no arrest had been made. Day 3 of the Inquest, Thursday, August 11, 1892 
As Lizzie Borden left her house at 92 2nd Street that Thursday morning, the last day of the inquest, did she think she may not be returning home? The newspapers and rumor bills were rife with the notion an arrest was imminent, a sentiment the police may have fostered. As she walked through the sitting room to the front door that morning and in answer to Marshall Hillier's bell, was the ghost of Andrew Borden's body lying on a now-absent sofa, playing through her mind? Or did she still feel the hangman's noose about her neck? Edwin Porter, with the Fall River Globe, gave the following report concerning the events of the inquest final timeline. The same impenetrable secrecy was maintained all day long, and no one knew what progress was being made behind the grim stone walls of the Central Police Station, where, wherein Judge Blaisdell and the chosen few set in solemn conclave the scenes of the day before were enacted in the guardroom and the streets about the building. Crowds surged about the doors, and a double guard of patrolmen were doing duty in the hallways. The forenoon session developed nothing so far, as the public was, as far as the public was concerned. Eli Bentz, the drug clerk, Fred Hart, another clerk, and Frank Kilroy, who saw Mr. Borden on the morning of the tragedy, strolled into the guardroom and were shown upstairs. Later, Bridget Sullivan escorted by two officers, walked up the alley. She attracted no attention and appeared to be at her ease. The fact that Bridget walked from her temporary residence at 95 Division Street to the police station, a distance of more than a mile in the heat of an August day, while other women witnesses rode in a hack, in a hack of the Borden house, from the Borden house, a distance of less than an eighth of a mile, caused some comment. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the closed carriage, which had become almost as dead, is a familiar sight as the police patrol rattled over the rough pavement. Half a dozen men were in sight, and in a twinkling, 200 men, women, and children swarmed around the coach. The city marshal gave an order. Stuart Geegan cracked the whip. Officers hustled the crowd back, and Mrs. George's brigham alighted. She was followed by Miss Emma and Miss Lizzie Borden. There was nothing remarkable in the appearance of the party. Mrs. Emma Borden began, Mrs. Emma Bo Miss Emma Borden began evidently the most agitated, being, I'm sorry, began uh, be being <laughs> evidently the most agitated. The excitement grew as the hour passed, and there was no movement from the courtroom. In the meantime, information arrived that an expert safe opener had arrived from Boston and had driven directly to the Borden house on 2nd Street. Investigation showed the truth of the story and the further the fact that he had commenced work upon the safe in which Andrew J. Borden kept his books and papers. The safe was found locked at the time of the tragedy, and the secret of the combination died with the murdered man. The expert believed he could easily open the safe, but he found the combination most intricate, and he worked away without apparent success. At five o'clock, Marshal Hilliard and District Attorney Knowlton came from the courtroom and entered the carriage. Soon, the Marshal returned, but the District Attorney was absent for nearly an hour and it was reported that he had visited the Borden house and had learned that the safe opener had not completed his work. Outside the courtroom, the cellward officers kept guard, and at the foot of the stairs of the station house, the large force of newspaper representatives were on guard too. They, the subordinate officers who had been working upon the case expressed their convictions that the long-delayed arrest was about to be made and that Lizzie Borden would not depart from the station with the remaining members of the household. Soon, Bridget Sullivan emerged and, escorted by a police officer, walked slowly down the street. Soon, the Inquisition was apparently ended, and then Lizzie Borden, her sister, and Mrs. Bram were escorted across the entry from the courtroom to the matron's room, which is situated upon the same floor. Miss Borden threw herself upon the lounge in the room 
and the repast was disturbed but little. Lizzie Bourne is arrested. Excuse me, my allergies. As Lizzie waited once again to be escorted back to her home, the wheels of justice were turning just across the hall from where she lay on the matron's lounge. After only 10 minutes of consultation, the decision of the authorities was to arrest Lizzie Borden. The court clerk was called, and a warrant quickly was drawn. Reporters, sus- reporters suspicious, but not certain enough to call their papers for the scoop of a lifetime, hung around the hallways, pencils poised. The crowds outside said something was in the air, and the tension was palpable. Marshal Hillier and Attorney Knowlton soon departed the station. A call had been placed to Attorney Jennings that the two men were on their way to see him. Upon arriving at Lizzie's attorney's home on the hill, they informed Jennings a warrant had been made out for Lizzie's arrest. They told him they thought it preferable for him to be there as the warrant was read to her at the police station. The two men returned to the station and Mr. Jennings arrived a few minutes later. George Brigham also came, perhaps to be there for his wife, who was in the room with Lizzie. Marshal Hillier and Detective Seaver entered the matron's room and informed Lizzie she was to be held by the government on the charge of murdering Andrew J. Borden. Oddly, the warrant was for Andrew only. They asked Mrs. Brigham to leave the room and turn to Lizzie. In the gentlest possible manner, the marshal said, I have here a warrant for your arrest, issued by the judge of the district court. I shall read it to you if you desire, but you have the right to waive the reading of it. Marshal Hillier looked at Attorney Jennings as he completed the latter part of the statement. Mr. Jennings turned to Lizzie and said, Wave the reading. Edward Porter with the Fall River Globe gives a fascinating account of what happened next. The first and only time during the scene, the accused woman uttered a word was in response to the direction of her attorney. Turning slightly in her position, she flashed a look at Marshall, at the Marshal, one of those queer glances which nobody has attempted to describe except by saying that they are part and parcel of Lizzie Borden, and replied, you need not read it. The information had a most depressing effect upon all the others present, particularly upon Miss Emma Borden, who was greatly affected. Upon the face of the prisoner, there was a pallor, and while her eyes were moist with tears, there was little evidence of emotion in the almost stoic countenance. The remaining members of the party prepared to depart, and the effects of the arrest became apparent upon the prisoner. She still displayed all the characteristics of, of her peculiarly unemotional nature. And though almost prostrated, she did not shed a tear. The New York Herald ran their version of the arrest and added the following. Lizzie did not say anything and still paid no heed to what was going on about her. Emma Borden looked into her sister's face and the tears began to roll down her face, but she did not say anything. Mr. Jennings addressed a few words of hope and comfort to his unfortunate client and bade her goodbye. Emma Borden went with him. She did not kiss her sister or even bid her goodbye, but went crying downstairs and through the police guardroom filled with curious people. Parentheses. That Emma would not hug, kiss, or tell her sister goodbye may show that Lizzie had still not forgiven her for withholding the information in the newspapers concerning her guilt. Based on Lizzie's past behavior and not forgiving easily, Emma may still be considered un worthy of her love at this time, even though the break came on Saturday evening, five days prior. It would not be the last time Emma would feel Lizzie's wrath. End quotes. End parentheses. The Fall River Herald reported a carriage was ordered to Miss Emma Borden and Mr. and Mrs. George Brigham prepared to leave. As they emerged from the station into the view of the curious crowds, 
The women, particularly Miss Emma, looked about with almost a pathetic glance. The people crowded forward, and the police pushed them back. Miss Emma appeared to be suffering intensely. Mrs. Brigham was more composed, but was evidently deeply concerned. The parties entered the carriage and were driven rapidly toward Second Street. Lizzie was left behind. Her first real indication of the gravity of the moment was when the matron informed her she must now be searched. The formalities of an arrest were administered, but Lizzie was not placed in a jail cell. According to the New York Herald, the chief stood and looked at her after the serving of the warrant. He concluded that a cell was no place for a human being so crushed and broken. He gave orders instead that she should occupy the matron's sleeping room, a large, well-furnished apartment on the second floor. No sooner had Matron Russell secured her bedding than Lizzie fell apart. She broke down and cried as though her heart would break. The sobbing soon gave way to fits of violent vomiting. The matron tried without success to help her, and finally, in desperation, Dr. Bowen was called. He, by, he was by now familiar with Lizzie's emotional lapses when her steady veneer peeled away to reveal a woman dominated by her nervous conditions and mood swings. He gave her a sedative and remained long enough to see her quiet. Dr. Bowen left behind him an exhausted Lizzie Borden. The sound of the matron's room door being securely locked was the last sound Lizzie heard as the warm, fuzzy haze of morphine overtook her. It was one week to the day that a hatchet had dispatched Abby and Andrew Borden. Chapter 28 the final autopsy. As the town reeled from the news, Lizzie Borden was arrested for the murder of Andrew Borden. The dead man's remains were being once again laid open. He and Abby were subjected to the ambiguous wide incision, which cut them open from collar from collarbone down to the pubis. Doctors Dolan, Cohn, Leary, and medical examiner Draper of Boston worked over the couple in minute detail. It was a gruesome job. The bodies had not been embalmed, and their decomposition was much advanced. Abby's head was shaved to get a better look at her wounds. It was shocking to see the number of haphazard cuts that seemed to go in every direction. There was a frenzied this was a frenzied attack. To their surprise, a wound appeared on her back between the shoulder blades. It was an extremely deep cut, showing the hatchet blade would have buried under her skin almost to the hell, almost to the hell. It alone would have produced instant death. The doctors conferred over the over the board's bodies and decided the heads would need to be removed in order to study the skulls and possibly retain and possibly be retained for court evidence. Dr. Dolan took possession of the two heads, taking them home, where their skin and hair was removed and the skulls boiled. The white skulls were then photographed. The arraignment. Friday, august twelfth, eighteen ninety two. Lizzie Borden was arraigned in the 2nd District Court of Fall River, Massachusetts, the morning following her arrest on Friday, August 12, 1892. A crowd was already assembled outside the courthouse by 9 o'clock, despite a drenching rain. A few minutes later, a hack arrived carrying Emma Borden and John Morse, who alighted and entered the police station. Upon reaching the matron's room at the top of the stairs, they were told they could not enter to see Lizzie. She was in conversation with the Reverend E.A. Buck, a gentleman who had become a fixture on her arm, as ever-present as, as a woman's handbag. Judge Blaisdell climbed the stairs, and passing Emma, entered the courtroom, where Attorney Knowlton was already in attendance. Marshal Hilliard entered next, carrying with him his big book of complaints. In the meantime, 
The door to Lizzie's room was opened, and Emma, John Morris, and Mr. Jennings entered to spend a few minutes in consultation with the prisoner. Mr. Jennings left and hurried across the hall of the courtroom, where he asked for a blank sheet of paper. As he quickly wrote across the page, the marshal approached him and asked if Lizzie was ready. Mr. Jennings nodded and continued to write. And when Porter, with the Fall River Daily Globe, gave the following account. Lizzie Borden entered the room on the arm of Reverend Buck. Of Reverend Buck. She was dressed in a dark blue suit, and her hat was black with red flowers on the front. She was escorted to a chair. The prisoner was not crying, but her features were far from firm. She has a face and a chin betokening strength of character, but a rather sensitive mouth, and on this occasion the sensitiveness of her lips especially betrayed itself. She was constantly moving her lips as she sat in the courtroom in a way to show she was not altogether unemotional. Clerk Leonard called the case of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts against Lizzie Borden on the complaint of murder. Mr. Jennings, who was still writing, asked for a little more time. He soon arose and went over the prisoner. He spoke to her and then gave her a pen. She signed the paper. Mr. Jennings then addressed the court, saying, Your Honor, before the prisoner pleads, she wishes to present the following. He then read as follows. Bristol 2nd District Court, Commonwealth versus Lizzie A. Borden. Complaint for homicide, defendant's plea. And now comes the defendant in the above entitled complaint, and before pleading, thereto say that the, that the Honorable Josiah C. Blaisdell, the presiding justice of the 2nd District Court in Bristol, before which said complaint is returnable, has been and believes is still engaged as the presiding magistrate at an inquest upon the death of said Andrew J. Borden, the person who, whom it is alleged is said, is said complaint the defendant killed, and has received and heard, and is still engaged in receiving and hearing evidence in relation to said killing, and to said defendant's connection therewith, which is not and has not been allowed to hear or know the report of, whereof she said, whereof she says, as said Honorable Josiah, Joseph, is it Joseph? I'm sorry about this. Yeah, Josiah C. Blaisdell is disqualified to hear this complaint, and she objects to his so doing, and all of this she is ready to verify. Lizzie A. Borden, by her attorney, Andrew J. Jennings, her signature, Lizzie A. Borden, sworn to this 12th day of August, A.D. 1892, before me, Andrew J. Jennings, Justice of the Peace. When Mr. Jennings concluded, Attorney Knowlton rose and asked the court if this paper was to delay the prisoner's plea. The court said it was not to, and ordered the clerk to read the warrant. You needn't read it, said Mr. Jennings. The prisoner pleads not guilty. The prisoner must plead in person said Judge Blaisdell. At a sign from City Marshal Hillier, the prisoner arose in her seat. What is your plea? asked the clerk. Not guilty, Lizzie said in a low voice. The court did not hear her, and she was asked the question again. In a loud voice, Lizzie said, not guilty, with a clear emphasis on the word not. Mr. Jennings then arose and accosted the judge with the unfairness to which his client had been treated. She had been denied counsel during the inquest, even though, for all intents and purposes, she was under arrest at the time. He went on to say that the judge should recuse himself from any further participation in an upcoming preliminary hearing, as there was no way he would not be pre that he would not be pre excuse me <laughs> as he would not be pre prejudiced after hearing all the evidence presented by the inquest. But all the laws of human by all the laws of human nature, you cannot help but be pre prejudiced. I'm sorry, I missed the word prejudice. 
by all laws of human nature, you cannot help but be prejudiced from the character of the evidence which has been submitted to you. The Constitution does not allow a judge to sit in such a double capacity as to and it guarantees a defendant from the prejudiced hearing. After hearing Mr. Knowlton's negation of Mr. Jennings' claims, the judge agreed with the DA and said, I think Mr. Jennings is mistaken. The statutes make it my imperative duty to hold an inquest and upon the testimony introduced at the hearing to direct the issuance of warrants. The motion is overruled and, and the demurrer is sustained. Then, Your Honor, Mr. Jennings declared, we are ready for trial. Attorney Knowlton blanched. The evidence in this case could not be completed at once. It could hardly all be gathered by next week, he said. He moved for a continuance until one week from Monday, August 22nd at 2 o'clock, when the state hoped to be entirely ready with the case. We are very anxious to proceed at once, Mr. Jennings said. We ask for a trial at the earliest possible moment. I don't know what you, you would waive examination here, so I am not re ready now, Knowlton said flatly. It was finally agreed that the preliminary hearing would take place in the same courtroom, August 22nd. Attorney Knowlton immediately moved the prisoner be committed until that date. Judge Blaisdell agreed, as the defense was not available one. But Mr. Knowlton was not finished. He looked at the back of the room where Bridget Sullivan and John Morse were seated. He told the judge the importance of Mr. Morse and Mrs. Sullivan and Miss Sullivan to the case of the state was so great that he wished to move that they be placed under bonds to guarantee their presence inside the court's jurisdiction. Judge Blaisdell said he would grant the request and asked how much the bond should be. $300 is the usual amount, Mr. Knowlton said, but on account of the gravity of this case, I suggest the amount be $500. Mr. Morris can procure bail, we suppose, but we don't know about Bridget Sullivan. Bridget had gone pale. It was obvious she did not know what was happening. They were both read the order of the court. Mr. Jennings dispatched one of his notary publics to go downtown and return with the bondsman. As Bridget and Morris waited, Lizzie was allowed to return to the matron's room on the arm of Reverend Buck. John Morris obtained bail from Mr. Almay and Mr. Milne with the Fall River Daily News. He soon left the building with Emma, who had spent 20 minutes in the matron's room with her sister and the Reverend. Morris and Emma threaded their way through the huge crowd and took, carriage, and took a carriage home. Bridget was finally released and with great relief stepped out of the police station into the rain to walk to her cousin's home on Division Street. Over at the Borden house, John A. Mayer, a mechanic from the Diable Safe Company of Number 72 Sudbury Street, was still struggling with the combination of Andrew Borden's old safe. Officer Harrington watched him anxiously as the day wore on. Finally, the tumblers fell into place, and the door was swung open. As Officer Harrington looked on, the contents were pulled out. Inside was a small amount of cash and some few papers, bundled and tied with strong cord. No will was found. The motive for Lizzie Borden's guilt had just gone up in smoke. According to the initial probate, which the sisters filed shortly after Andrew's death, Mr. Borden died intestate. He left real estate value at, valued at $8,190 and a personal estate valued at $13,408.04. Well, this record falls short of listing Andrew's true worth as a mystery. The Fall River Accessors books showed a total valuation of local real estate at $173,650 and a personal estate between $175,000 and $250,000. It was accepted locally that Andrew Borden left an estate valued at near $500,000, a staggering amount in 1892. In 2016, 
It's the equivalent of nearly $14 million. Lizzie Borden remained in the matron's room as her family and friends departed. Men's voices were always prevalent outside the door as she heard the police coming and going about their business. There would be occasional bouts of laughter which angered her. Her life had just changed forever as she was going to jail. There should be no laughter. Her lips worked nervously as she tried to picture what lay ahead. What did a jail cell look like? How long would she be held there? Perhaps they would realize it was a big mistake and let her go home. This wasn't supposed to happen to her. She had always managed to worm her way free of complications. As the noise of the police station surrounded her, all she could do was to await transportation to the county jail in Taunton. Off to jail. Matron Russell helped Lizzie prepare for her transfer. Lizzie looked at her with those cat-shaped gray eyes and said, So they're going to take me to Taunton, are they? I believe they are, replied Mrs. Russell. Well, Lizzie said, a touch of the old haughtiness in her voice, they seem to do about as they please with me. They were up to my house and brought me down here to the inquest twice, and then they brought me here for a rest, and I don't know what, what it, and I did not know what it all meant. Now they're going to take me to jail. They are having their own way with me now, but I will have mine by and by. The strong-willed woman who could not tolerate a hand in her face is seen plainly in these words. It is as if it is incomprehensible to her that she be treated this way, murder suspect or not. Reverend Buck once again visited Lizzie in the matron's room at the Central Police Station as she waited to be taken to Taunton Jail on the 340 train. He brought her a bouquet of flowers which she displayed in her windowsill. As the time arrived for Lizzie's departure from the police station, Court Square was once again choked with people. A carriage drew up to the main entrance, and Emma Borden and Andrew Jennings climbed in. Lizzie's carriage was waiting at the side of the entrance. She stepped inside, quickly flanked by Marshal Hilliard, State Detective Seaver, and Reverend Buck. A small valise of her belongings sat beside her. She appeared calm and resolute. The route taken to the train station was instigated to outrun the press and deny the curious a glimpse of the prisoner. Instead of the straightforward route from the station to the Brownville Depot, the carriage turned up one road, then down another, through side streets and thoroughfares skirting the river. It was, alas, for naught. As Lizzie's buggy near the depot, a crush of people could be seen, along with the tenacious press. There was a squad of officers there under duty, and as the crowd surged, the police pushed back. The Fall River Herald reported, The train for Taunton was a few minutes late, and until its arrival, Lizzie Borden and Mr. Buck remained in the carriage. As the clang of the engine bell was heard, the marshal pulled up the carriage curtains and assisted Lizzie Borden to alight. She was prettily dressed and appeared quite excuse me, and appeared quite prepossessing. She wore a blue dress of new design and a short blue veil. At the realization that the moment for departure had arrived, she was overcome by a momentary weakness and almost tottered. She was at once supported by the marshal and Mr. Buck, and leaning upon the arms of the two, she walked through the ladies' waiting room and towards the cars. The eager crowd pushed and stared and gossiped as the party entered the rear car of the train. Reverend Buck carried a box containing a number of religious and other papers and magazines, and also some books. A telescope bag containing Miss Borden's apparel was placed in the cars. The prisoner sat near the window in a seat with Mr. Buck, and behind them was Mr. Hilliard. The blinds were drawn in order to prevent, annoy prevent annoyance to Miss Borden by, by curious persons. Her glance was vacant and her thoughts were manifestly removed from her present surroundings. 
Not a word was exchanged between the members of the party, and the prisoner still remained in the same position, staring at nothing. In some manner, the information that Miss Borden was on the train spread, and at a few stations at which it stopped, small knots of inquisitive people were gathered. At 4.20, the train from Fall River, bearing the most famous prisoner in New England history, pulled into the Taunton station. Hundreds of people crowded around each car. Officer Seaver, who was acting as a decoy, hurried to the north end of the station, and the crowd quickly followed. Marshal Hilliard and Reverend Buck assisted Lizzie from the south end of the depot and into a waiting carriage. By the time the disappointed crowd caught on, the buggy was racing toward the Taunton jail, with hacks full of newspaper reporters in hot pursuit. The sight of her final destination may have somewhat cheered Lizzie. This was not the austere, gray, and foreboding facade of the central police station. Rather, the Taunton jail was a picturesque stone building, not far removed from the city, with a profusion of ivy growing in lovely gardens. There were accommodations for 65 prisoners, with the women's department housing nine cells, five of which were occupied. Marshal Hilliard accompanied Lizzie into the corridor and left her for a moment with Reverend Buck while he turned over the paperwork to Sheriff Wright, the jailkeeper. The Reverend offered Lizzie words of cheer, later stating she did not look surprised at the sight of her jail cell, feeling she would be vindicated soon. The Marshal and Reverend Buck departed, leaving Lizzie in the care of, sheriff, of the Sheriff's wife. Lizzie looked around her small room, which measured nine by seven feet. It contained a bedstead, chair, and washbowl. Lizzie requested that none of the daily newspapers be brought into her. As Matron Wright helped Lizzie adjust to her new surroundings, she thought she saw something familiar about her eyes and countenance. After several questions, Mrs. Wright asked, Are you not the Lizzie Borden who used, used to, as a child, play with my daughter Isabel? Lizzie remembered the Wrights as neighbors in Fall River for many years ago, when Mrs. Wright held the position of city marshal. She answered that she was. The matron left the cell with tears in her eyes. The afternoon drew to a close. Lizzie was told she could not have visitors. Could not have visitors, her own bedding from home, and food brought in or purchased from wherever she wanted. Subsequently, many of her meals were brought in from the city hotel, a privilege that quickly found its way to the newspaper. An article printed on August 29, 1892 by the Fall River Daily Globe was headlined, Money Does Wonders. Lizzie Borden allowed too many privileges by the police. Another article from the Taunton Daily Gazette on August 13, 1892 read, Scores of curious people have walked by the jail today to see where Miss Borden's held. They saw a neat, ivy-clad building. That was all. Lizzie reaches out through the bars. Lizzie's first night within the whitewashed walls of the Taunton jail may have been bittersweet. The enormity of what she was facing was now a very real thing. All her cunning and planning had not fooled the police. Mrs. Jennings assured her repeatedly that the prosecution had no evidence that would convict her. They had simply been unable to run down anyone else to pin it on. The blessing, of the, 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 blessing the confinement brought was a sudden respite from the people who surrounded her life from the morning she caught from the morning she called Bridget downstairs and sent her for Dr. Bowen. The crowds had been relentless, peering up at her windows, asking for interviews, shouting at her from the streets. The police had ransacked her home on numerous occasions and looked through her personal toiletries and undergarments. Her life had been put on display, but here, with the, with the, impen with the impenetrable wall and bars and protection of the jailkeeper, she was safe. 
No one could get at her here without her consent. Oddly, it was a small sense of control in a situation designed to remove, remove it from her. Lizzie declined all interviews. She did, however, cleverly get her Declaration of Innocence into the papers via her friends. The Fall River Herald printed an interview with Mrs. George Brigham, the friend who had accompanied Lizzie to the inquest, under the hitting Miss Borden's friend. The timely release of this interview was only a few days before the preliminary hearing was to start. You could hear Lizzie's version of the events clearly through her friend Mrs. Brigham's words. I wish you would stamp a lie on the a lie. I wish you would stamp a lie the allegation that Lizzie was not happy with her father and mother. Her stepmother, I mean, Mrs. Brigham said. She has told me many times that these latter years have been her happiest. The story that she would not sit at the table with her father is a falsehood of the blackest sort. It has been said that Mr. Borden was angry with and did not speak to Lizzie upon her return from Europe. That, too, is a falsehood, distorted out of facts that were as contrary to the statement as could be. On the night Lizzie arrived, the family had given her up, and Mr. and Mrs. Borden had gone to bed. Lizzie was very tired, and only spoke a few words to Emma that night, and retired. The next morning, Mr. Borden found her, her steamer chair in the hall, and bounded upstairs three, three at a time to see and greet her. And Lizzie told me, her hand ached all day he pressed it so hard. Going downtown, he met a man who said to him, Well, I would guess that someone had come home judging from your bright face this morning. Mr. Borden was, as they say, not a de excuse me, not a demonstrative man. But he loved his daughters and showed it at such times when they came back after being away. He did not like them being away from home. I could give you very many illustrations of this, showing Lizzie's kind consideration for her father and for her. For instance, both girls would have much preferred to live in this part of town to where they did, the hill, and often expressed the wish, of course but said that it was better for their father, more convenient to live where they did, as it was near his business interests, and so they did not urge it. On the other hand, the father, knowing the wish, told him only a short time ago to look for a house in this neighborhood. Now, as to Mrs. Mrs. Borden, while she was a very, very good woman, she was not at all affectionate or calculated to draw the children to her. She was simply mild and good, and so long as things went smoothly, she would have very little to say about the house. So that should not be taken as proof of any bitterness of feeling between them, for there was none. Lizzie Borden was a kind and generous girl, very generous, who would do anything in the world for anyone she thought much of. Whenever there were subscriptions to be made, made up, she, she contributed literally. And I have seen her assume debts at the church all by herself. These stories of her being skimped for money are equally false with the others. While her income was scarcely in keeping with the wealth of her father, she had more money than she needed. She had the best clothes, her room was fitted luxuriously as a parlor and bedroom, and she bought books by the set rather than the volume. Now let me tell you about the arrangement for her outing to Marion just previous to the tragedy. I was invited to be, a, be of that party, and like her, I could not go with those who went first, although the fact that she couldn't have been spoken of is so singular. She couldn't go because her father and mother were going to Swansea. Her mother was depending upon a certain companion, as Mr. Borden spent so much time in town that she would not remain over there alone. They found they couldn't get the woman, so and so gave up the idea, and Mrs. Borden told Lizzie to go on with her plans. Previously to this, 
Lizzie had promised to act as a substitute for the Secretary of the Christian Endeavor Society at its meeting on Sunday. It was an important consecration and business meeting. Had it not been for this, she would have gone to Marion on Saturday, but she would not break her word. It was early in the week when her mother told her she might go on with her plans, and she determined to visit her mother's cousin, Mrs. Morse, at Warren, for a couple of days, and wrote to that effect. She was taken violently ill on Tuesday morning, and on Wednesday morning, not feeling well enough, she wrote to Mrs. Morris that she could not come. And as to this and as to insanity, there has never been a trace of it about her. She was a girl of very even temper. She never excited. She had ideas, spoke them quietly and clearly. She could not be insane for the instant of committing mur the murder, and then return to her own normal self instantly. And after each of the two murders, for I think Mrs. Borden was murdered first, as do the others. Her conduct since the murder has been just what anyone would expect. They speak of her dry eyes. Is it not all too awful to cry about? We might weep, as all of us have, for the death of Mr. and Mrs. Borden, but this, this is too terrible. Even I cannot weep in the face of it. Her pride was touched at the first sign of suspicion being directed against her, and the horror of it has, her, has kept her as she is. When Mrs. Brigham was asked during the interview, can you tell me how the murders might have been committed? You get the feeling that the reporter had an inkling that Mrs. Brigham's words were actually coming from Lizzie's mouth, and that perhaps he might hit Pater with his question. I do not wish to add to the many theories which have been discussed, Mrs. Brigham said, but then goes on in what can only be Lizzie's version of an intruder. But I know that Lizzie herself has often spoken to her mother about the arrangement of the rooms and halls of the house, and how anyone might come in and go all over the house without anyone knowing it. Members of the family have often done so and spoken of it. The house is a very solid old building, and any noise or jar is not easily heard. A man could have entered by the cellar way, by, by the cellar way or the cellar, or the side door, gone upstairs and killed Mrs. Borden, and afterward gone down and hidden in the parlor, which was rarely entered by any of the family. From there, he could see anyone in the sitting room and, and taking the opportunity have killed Mr. Borden and passed out either by the cellar way of, which would have been easier, turned the spring latch and walked out of the front door and down the street. That's what a caller of the house. The reporter asks, knowing the family and its history as you do, have you no theory as to who committed this murder? He has already asked Mrs. Brigham twice if Lizzie suspects anyone. Here he may be again be looking for Lizzie's insights through her friend's words when he finds them. No, I have not, Mrs. Brigham said. Mr. Borden was a man who spoke his mind very freely to anyone, and if they attempted to reply, he would shut his teeth and walk away. Of course he had enemies, but none that I could suspect of such a deed. The amazing interview is a window into Lizzie's mind. She continues to manipulate even when confined in jail cell. Her dear friend and constant supporter, Reverend Jubb, also manages to get her words out. As another strike against her, Lizzie, as another strike against Lizzie needing to kill her father for money. The Fall River Herald, a few days before the preliminary hearing, Reverend Jubb. Lizzie was very fond of her father. She asked why don't they go to the bank and find out just how much ready cash she has in her credit. They would dispose of the question of the money. Uh, the money. They said that her father would not give her what money she wanted to take, take a vacation. What folly. She wanted to go to Marion for a few days. How much do you suppose she would need for that? And is it reasonable that with the pleasures of the holiday and her thoughts, 
she would turn to thinking of murder. Emma, ever faithful, puts the final spin on, Liz, on Lizzie's innocence the one of her rare, through one of her rare interviews with the press. New Bedford Daily Mercury, Saturday, August 13th, 1892. Emma Borden made the following statement at the conclusion of the inquest. I believe firmly in my sister's innocence. She will have my full support and cooperation because I am certain she deserves it. The, bl- the blow has been terrible for me to bear, but I cannot help it. My resources will be at her command. Emma Borden was put in charge of Andrew's vast wealth, as Lizzie was legally not able to touch it. She paid half of her younger sister's legal expenses, which was formidable. Not only were the, not only were there the cost of the imprisonment charges, but the fees of the myriad attorneys representing Liz, Lizzie were staggering. The former governor of Massachusetts, George D. Robinson, would take the helm for Lizzie's defense during the Superior Court trial. All right, guys, that's it. Uh, we'll continue next Sunday. And let me close this off. There we go. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. But we'll continue next Sunday, same time, same place. I want to thank you all for coming tonight and listening. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it. The book is absolutely fascinating, you know, to look into the case itself. Tomorrow, we are going to have David Weiss on and 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And David Weiss believes in the flat earth theory. So we're going to talk to him and ask him about his thoughts on that. All right. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies because we are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. You know, and again, if you're watching from Facebook, please hit that follow button. If you're watching from Twitch, hit, uh, Twitch, hit that follow button. And YouTube, if you look down at the bottom right-hand corner, you're going to see a ghost with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. That is our mascot. And that will subscribe you to all of our videos. Uh, we're, you know, we actually, we're also going to have some how-to videos, some travel videos on here coming up. So uh, it's going to be a wide array of stuff. And uh, this way you'll be notified and know what's going on. All right. I want to thank you guys for coming tonight, and I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific for Dave, for for the man who's known as Flat Earth Dave. See you tomorrow.